and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Zara Kasamali Escobar, and I am an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at the UW Medicine Valley Medical Center in Renton, Washington, and a clinical faculty member at the University of Washington School of Pharmacy. Today, my guests are two people leading the charge in evaluating and rethinking antimicrobial usage in dentistry, Dr. Katie Suda and Dr. Aaron Kennedy. Dr. Suda is the professor in the School of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. She earned her Doctor of Pharmacy from Drake University, completed her PGY-1 residency at Baptist Memorial Healthcare in Memphis, Tennessee, and an Infectious Diseases and Outcomes Research Fellowship at the University of Illinois at Chicago. In addition, she has a master's degree in epidemiology from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Dr. Kennedy earned her Doctor of Medical Dentistry from Nova Southeastern College of Dental Medicine. She completed a general practice residency at the VA in Baltimore and a dental public health residency at Harvard. She inaugurated a master's in science program at Harvard in dental education and recently earned that designation as well. Last May, Dr. Suda and her colleagues published an assessment of antibiotic prescriptions for infection prophylaxis for dental procedures in JAMA, which was the first national analysis of these data in the US and found around one in five antibiotics were prescribed appropriately. Both Dr. Suda and Dr. Kennedy are co-authors on a recent American Dental Association guideline for appropriate usage of antibiotics in management of pulpal and periapical related dental pain and intraoral swelling. Dr. Kennedy was part of the team who developed the antibiotic stewardship toolkit for oral health teams in Massachusetts. Welcome Katie and Erin. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. So before we get started in our content, I wanna acknowledge that we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic and all of us are under stay-at-home advisories in our respective states, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Washington. On March 15th, the New York Times published an article about workers who face the greatest coronavirus risk and the profession at highest risk, defined both by exposure to, to disease and physical proximity to others, was dentistry. Erin, I understand that in addition to your academic work, you are also a practicing dentist. So can you comment on this and how it has impacted you and your dental colleagues? Sorry, absolutely. And like many oral health professionals, I also saw this article showing that many dental team members face the greatest risk for contracting COVID-19. So weeks before these orders were established in Massachusetts, I was working with my team to brainstorm ways that we would safely treat a patient. I really believe that you create these plans in advance so that when you enter a stressful situation, even if it's normal patient care in the midst of a pandemic, you already have a planned response, just like CPR. And so we've done just that. Our team has continued to follow and expand upon those systems. And as we learn more from leaders in the field, like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, we use these resources and these additional tools to constantly change and update our plan. So right now, our practice is using teledentistry as much as possible and providing emergency care um, based on the recommendations of the Department of Public Health in Massachusetts and the Board of Registration and Dentistry. Well, wow, that's really interesting. I've actually been thinking about this a lot recently because I've had a periodic toothache over the last week. And since I live in a new state and I'm you know, looking for all new providers, um, I don't have a, a dentist in Pittsburgh. So, and this was something I never thought of before as far as you know, keeping the dentist safe and the dental hygienist and the rest of the staff at the dental practice safe. 
but why haven't we thought about this before in regards to influenza and there should be safety measures in place. Absolutely. You know, I, I noticed at the beginning of April that the American Dental Association released interim guidance for minimizing risk of transmission. And, you know, we've been watching this closely in my household because my husband is a dentist. So we, you know, we, we were concerned right at that, right at the beginning at the outset here in Washington. And so anyways, going back to the ADA, some of these uh, recommendations that they suggest are, are the same as like what we would see in other medical settings, like, you know, limiting visitors that come with the patient and spacing out patient visits. And avoiding, of course, avoiding treating patients who have symptomatic respiratory infections. But there's definitely some unique situations going on in dentistry. Like, you know, most of the procedures are aerosol generating and many practices have open bays, you know, so the patients aren't separated into individual rooms. And, and also, you know, and I always worry, is there enough PPE in dental practices to safely open up? Well, I have so much to say here. So I'm going to start with kind of the beginning and work my way through uh, all of your questions, hopefully. But when this pandemic started, um, my initial response to, was to work with my staff to create a step-by-step -step protocol that we would hang outside of our operatory. I don't know if you guys have ever read the book, Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. Anyone? Yeah, it's, it's a great book. It's a fabulous read. I'm obsessed it's excellent, especially if you're leading a team that has to perform a task or a series of tasks really well, consistently and under pressure. And so our first step was develop a care protocol. Um, and it's actually 29 steps. And we actually say the steps out loud because what I learned in residency from working in an OR is that you perform your best when you have these steps that you do every single time. And especially if it's something that maybe you haven't done before or a way that you've practiced before, a good example is COVID-19, right? We're using many of the same infection control processes that we've used all along in dentistry, but it's at a time where it's so critical to make sure every single team member follows the step, like donning PPE taking off PPE. You know, it's something we've done for years, but in a time where the stakes are really high, I think it's important to go back to what we know. I think we can learn a lot from dentists, particularly on implementing infection prevention. Part of my other body of research is studying the epidemiology of multidrug resistance and effectiveness of large-scale infection prevention policy. So for decades now, we've tried to get hospital personnel to just wash their hands, right? And just change their gowns and gloves. Of course, during COVID, this is a different time. But, you know, I go to the dentist and I watch the dentist and the hygienist actually wash their hands as they walk in chairside before they leave. They use sterile tongs just to grab a cotton swab, they even though they have gloves on, they all wear gloves and they all wear PPE. I think it's just amazing how systematic they are about certain things they do at every step to focus on infection prevention. You're right, Katie. Hand washing is one of the most challenging behavior changes to implement in the hospital, pre-COVID at least. Erin, what do you think about point-of-care testing in dental practices? It is something that so many dental organizations, including the Academy of General Dentistry, is advocating for right now. 
And it's also something that our team is looking to implement as soon as it's available. We've been conducting saliva testings for years. And so point of, um, we call it chair side screening, but point of care testing or point of care screening is something that we've been doing for a while with saliva as it relates to oral health. And so I think we're uniquely situated to do that in the future as well. But in the meantime, we follow the CDC's guidelines for screening patients for COVID-19. If you've had active upper respiratory symptoms, or any symptoms in the past you know, 24 hours, we look at a patient's travel record. Many of our patients, it's not as much their travel record that might put them at risk, but we treat frontline patients for the state of Massachusetts. So anyone who's in you know, some of the school systems when they were open, nurses, long-term care facilities, people who are working out in the public, whether it's on the roads or as a police officer uh, on a regular basis. And so it's really their jobs and the fact that they're an essential worker that can also put them at risk right now. And we also do temperature screenings in the office. And then another thing that I thought was really interesting is, you know, they have, there's one recommendation is mouth rinses with hydrogen peroxide or povidone iodine. And, you know, I just wonder how effective is that? So if for some reason um, a patient does require emergency care, and in some cases that care may generate an aerosol, even though we're trying to limit that at this point, we know that this virus is susceptible to forms of oxidation, which is why washing your hands for 20 to 30 seconds, and I always tell people 30 seconds because we always cut things short, just like when we're brushing our teeth. But making sure that we're using things that oxidize the environment around this virus is really important. And so that's why one of the steps in my protocol and one of the recommendations right now that's being used is to do a pre-rinse with an oxidating agent. And a good example of that is hydrogen peroxide. The good news about hydrogen peroxide and how it relates to your oral health is that it's actually fantastic for helping develop your, your oral microbiome over time. So in our office, patients who have a heavy microbiome or we are trying to, in a lot of ways, like a, a heavy biofilm that we're trying to switch from maybe a pathogenic biofilm that's causing periodontal disease and tooth decay to one that's thriving with commensal bacteria and not causing disease. One of the rinses that we recommend, and we often recommend that they put in a water pick is hydrogen peroxide. So it's not something that is um, scary or dangerous. It's actually something that we use on a regular basis with our patients. That's really interesting, Erin. I one other thing to point out, Zara, is that the American Dental Association, as you mentioned, does have some COVID guidance out there, and they are recommending following the new oral pain and oral swelling guidelines as much as possible. Those guidelines are separated by whether or not the patient has access to dental care. So it is recommended that dentists not prescribe antibiotics according to those guidelines and to prescribe antibiotics according to those guidelines. And the ADA is also recommending prescribing NSAIDs and, and or acetaminophen for oral pain if appropriate for that patient. Great. Um, Aaron, is, is, a, is a side effect of the hydrogen peroxide, is it, or a good side effect, uh, teeth whitening? Does that, does that impact <laughs> any of the cosmetics? It is. It is because when you oxidize stains as well um, in your teeth, they become whiter over time. So that's actually uh, <laughs> a benefit. <laughs> That's good. Good for our safety and our vanity. I do want to come back to COVID and get your opinions on what impact, if any, uh, you think it's having on uh, utilization of antibiotics in dentistry. But first, I, I want to define the issue at hand and why are we singling out dentistry for antimicrobial usage? So maybe, Katie, you can give us the lay of the land. 
Yeah, I don't, I'm not sing, singling out dentistry. I think stewardship efforts have not traditionally included dentists. And there's been a lot of data on national antibiotic prescribing. And what we found is that dentists prescribe a similar amount of antibiotics in, as internists. And dentists prescribe 10% of all antibiotics in the United States. So that's one in, out of every 10 antibiotic prescriptions. And what the CDC has reported is that national antibiotic prescribing rates in the outpatient setting are actually decreasing. But for dentists, antibiotic prescribing are, is increasing. So as you know, antibiotic stewardship in outpatient healthcare settings has increased in, in general in the US. I don't think any of us would say that outpatient antibiotic stewardship is widespread at the individual clinic level, but most outpatient antimicrobial stewardship efforts have focused on primary care medical clinicians. But with antibiotic prescribing by dentists increasing, it is time to implement stewardship efforts focused on dentists. Katie, I, I could not agree more. I think you make a really fantastic point about when you're trying to create an antibiotic stewardship program or effort in a smaller clinic, I think it poses a lot of challenges, whether it's a small primary care office or a dental office. From my experience working in a federally qualified health center in private practices, et cetera, I think the other challenge that we have to bring to light is that dentists are often in these really small clinics. And it might be one dentist or even maybe a small group of dentists. Um, many internists might work at a larger hospital where an antibiotic stewardship program may be a part of a division. It may have a, an assigned leader or someone who's a champion in that field or takes care of all of the data, or they may have an entire team dedicated to antibiotic stewardship. And so when I worked on implementing antibiotic stewardship programs in, my, in the practices that I've been involved in, I've really had to create unique tools for data collection and training that can be applied to a small clinic that are not time consuming and that are practical and that are easy to do. In our Massachusetts State Toolkit, we created a chart audit form that can actually be downloaded and completed completed by a staff member or a dentist. This can be paper or it can be electronic. The best use of this form that I've seen was a community health center in Boston. They actually took the audit form and turned it into a questions that were in a fillable note template. So anytime you have a patient experience or an appointment, you have to go in and write a clinical note, right? In many cases, you can click through that form, right? So they make it go a little bit quicker than you writing a really long note in long sentences. They try to make it as objective and clear and detailed as possible. So you can do that inside your EHR and you can make these custom to your clinic. Well, they actually took the audit form and turned it into a note template. So basically you were required to have all the information that was in this audit form um, during that exam appointment in order to prescribe this antibiotic at the end. And they did this so that they could actually calibrate all of their providers uh, across five different sites. And it was phenomenal. It was actually something that I've then taken and put into my own practice um, because I was looking at this as like, okay, well, you're going to, you're either going to print or download this form and you're going to conduct these quarterly audits. And that's how you're going to kind of keep track of you and your other team members. And they said, no, let's do this before the, the, uh, the event or the appointment happens. Let's do it as a part of that experience so that people are practicing antibiotic stewardship and providers are practicing antibiotic stewardship 
basically in real time. Uh, and so that was, that was really fantastic. And I felt like it was a, a really great use of this and a way to bring antibiotic stewardship into a really small setting where it didn't seem cumbersome. It didn't take extra time and it helped uh, clinicians make these decisions uh, sequentially and, and based on evidence. That makes so much sense. It's, it's, it's absolutely the easy button. Even when I, when I was kind of reading through prophylaxis in preparation to talk to you guys today, it reminded me of that anxiety I felt in pharmacy school because I couldn't keep it straight. You know, what are the indications for prophylaxis, specifically, you know, with prosthetic joint replacements because they've really changed over the past few years. Doing this note template totally takes that recall and thinking out of the picture, at least for, is this appropriate? Because if your patient meets these checkboxes, then yeah, then it is appropriate. And I, again, I, I think that, you know, people are prescribing antibiotics. It's coming from a good place. They're trying to do what's best by their patient, but I'm not always familiar with when it is best. So Aaron, can you comment on when antibiotics are appropriate to use? You know, what are the risks dentists are concerned about when they're prescribing antibiotics? Absolutely. Um, I always try to simplify antibiotic stewardship because I think it can become or seem or feel really prescriptive. When I'm working with my colleagues, I think one of the ways that I simply put it is that you should use antibiotics when they are indicated through the evidence for a specific diagnosis and when the benefits of these antibiotics outweigh the potential risk. Antibiotics are a tool. They are not an end-all be-all. And in the case of many oral conditions, they are not definitive treatment. So they are a tool to help alleviate um, either symptoms or a piece of that, but it's not an actual cure. And that's actually one of the posters that I made in the state of Massachusetts because it was something that kept coming up in the surveys and the information that we were collecting. And it was so important for our patients across Massachusetts to know that antibiotics cannot cure your toothache. Definitive dental care will cure your toothache. And the next piece is reminding providers to go back to that evidence. So anytime you should prescribe an antibiotic or you're contemplating using that as a tool in your clinical decision-making, you have to remember that you have to go back to the evidence. The evidence is always changing. And I think it's important to bookmark certain pieces to go back to on a regular basis so that you can stay up to date. I'm constantly checking myself. I'm immersed in it and I'm writing about antibiotic stewardship all the time. And someone asked me a question and actually it happened when we were getting ready for this podcast. And I went back and I double checked something I've probably read a hundred times. And the next piece to this for dentists to remember is a specific diagnosis. We should no longer be prescribing antibiotics just in case something happens, but really because the diagnosis warrants the use of that antibiotic. And lastly, we have to remember every clinical decision we make as providers is we should be doing good with that decision. And that in the case of antibiotics is when the benefits outweigh the potential risks. Katie, would you add anything there? I wanna agree with Erin and, and say that dentists do prescribe a lot of antibiotics just in case. And part of this goes to the lack of evidence that there is for some specific prophylaxis decisions and also access decisions, meaning does the patient have dental care available? But in general, dentists are just very risk averse. And that combined with few prescribing resources to guide prescribing has led to a lot of inappropriate antibiotic prescribing by dentists. Mm -hmm. And that includes guidelines. There's few guidelines to guide dentists on prescribing antibiotics. Yes, there's these new guidelines on the treatment of oral pain and swelling, 
but we need more guidance on the use of preventative antibiotics. For example, do tooth extractions and dental implants require antibiotic prophylaxis? What about immunocompromised patients? Dentists like to call that group medically complex um, patients and diabetes patients. And there also seems to be a perception by many, not just dentists, is that antibiotics that are taken for a short duration, maybe just one dose or a day or two are safe. But we found that in a sample of commercially insured patients that received unnecessary antibiotic prophylaxis that was only prescribed for a day or two, that one to 4% of that group had a serious adverse drug event. And we also found that clindamycin was associated with more events when compared to amoxicillin. So even though antibiotics are prescribed sometimes for a short duration, they're not without risk. And the results from our study was backed up by a study in the United Kingdom, which was published a few years ago, which found that a single dose of clindamycin administered prior to dental visits had the similar frequency of adverse drug events as a prolonged course. And in this UK study, clinda was more likely to be associated with ADEs when compared with amoxicillin or cephalosporins. And C. difficile infection was actually the most frequent ADE associated with clindamycin. So interesting. You know, I think, Katie, it's in your data that you, you've shown that dentists are the, the, the most common prescribers of clindamycin. Is that right? They and, are in the United States. They're the primary prescriber of clinda. That's correct. Right. And as, a, as an antibiotic steward, I mean, that's sort of like a, a, whether it's earned or not, a 101 that it makes your hairs on the back of your neck go up because clindamycin is the poster child for C. diff. But I remember, I think it was ID Week, maybe last year, that Katie, you were presenting and you actually went through the anatomy um, and how treatment approach differed depending on the area affected. So maybe Erin, could you orient us, you know, what part of the tooth are you talking about when you're talking about pulpal and periapical emergencies? And is that what a root canal does? You know, what about cavities? Are we supposed to be using antibiotics to treat those? Well, I'm more than happy to kind of walk walk us all through it again. Um, I think it's so important. Every time I go through this from start to finish, I think, oh gosh, it's sometimes it's hard to take some of the things that I, I take for granted and think about every day and make it seem really straightforward, especially over a podcast without any photos. But typically what we think about when we think about caries or tooth decay or a cavity, those, those words are all um, interchangeable. It means that you have bacteria in your mouth and these bacteria are by your teeth or on your teeth and these bacteria produce acids and over time your tooth changes and it develops a lesion or an area where it's become less hard and has less minerals and these bacteria have been able to penetrate your tooth and this process just keeps propagating and if it doesn't go too far inside your tooth and it stays on the enamel or the white shiny part that you see when you smile then many times we can actually fix this with new technology and innovation and often what I call with my patients, your medicine for your tooth. And so we can actually remineralize and, and reverse in some cases these, these lesions. But if it goes to the next part of your tooth, which is the dentin, I like to describe this uh, as the same consistency as like Swiss cheese uh, to my patients. And it's likely that we can resolve this with a filling or in some cases you might've heard um, a dentist call this a restoration. However, sometimes the bacteria that's associated with tooth decay or your cavity, it may make it 
all the way to the inside of your tooth. And in the inside of your tooth, you have your pulp. Uh, many patients call this the nerve of your tooth, but there's much more than uh, just a nerve inside your pulp. There's collagen and blood vessels. There's an entire neural network inside your tooth. And so these bacteria can cause irritation or inflammation of this pulp tissue. So when this happens, a patient typically reports some throbbing pain and sensitivity to temperature. Uh, and this condition is known as symptomatic irreversible pulpitis. And so this is the inside of your tooth and it's inflamed. And in this case, it still does not require an antibiotic for treatment. So this condition may manifest as sharp pain, especially if you have something like ice water. Uh, if you have a patient that has a toothache in this case and they have symptomatic irreversible pulpitis, they will be sure to tell you that they cannot have Ben and Jerry's, ice water, uh, anything cold. And so oftentimes this can worsen and it will become spontaneous and co or constant and the pain can just become more severe over time. So this progressive pulp inflammation may move from inside the tooth where the nerve is to outside the tooth. And oftentimes it's at the tip of your tooth, I guess is what I would describe, or at the end of your root to a patient. And a lot of times I'll take my finger and point up to the top part of their tooth, way up where, you know, their lip and, and their jawbone kind of connect. That's where it would be. And so at this point, this inflammation can move outside your tooth. And it's not yet an infection in that sense, but there is inflammation because of the bacteria that, that have got into the structure. And so when it moves out into this region, it's also called the apical region. It's a term that's used is called symptomatic apical periodontitis. And so this may re this may result actually because the inside of your nerve at this point has died from being exposed to these bacteria. And so now you um, may have a patient that comes to you and says, well, my tooth's died. It doesn't even bother me anymore because it died. But now when I bite down or when I chew on something, or if I have a crunchy food, it really hurts. And at this point, if you're a, a provider and you're taking a look at your patient, you can tap on the tooth and it will be very very painful and it can kind of help you isolate the tooth that's causing the patient issues. And so at this point, your nerve can die. This inflammation can move from inside the tooth to outside the tooth, which you have symptomatic apical periodontitis. And at this point, it will slowly move into, if not taken care of by either a root canal and or um, a tooth extraction. At this point, if you don't take care of it, it can actually move into an infection. And so this infection um, can be localized to the area right around the tooth. And sometimes you'll have a little bubble on your gum or a swelling in that area that's very localized. This is called a localized acute apical abscess. And you may have this bumper, you may have an abscess in that area but it can also spread. So it might not stay just right next to that root surface or right next to that bone area around the tooth, but can actually spread further. And this is where, depending on the location and the patient's status, it can further develop and become more of a, a diffuse swelling, or it can actually become more of a systemic infection as well. Just to point out um, that dentists rarely take cultures so there's really no bacteriology or antibiotic sensitivities to guide prescribing. You know, actually, Katie, this is a good point. It reminds me, when I was in residency at the VA, I worked with a phenomenal uh, oral surgeon, and I, I, I hope he uh, <laughs> is listening to this, Dr. Mark Eisen, but he was a fantastic mentor. And each time we treated an infection, 
especially if we were able to, like, let's say someone had a localized acute apical abscess and we were able to get a fantastic culture or we took out a tooth, we actually performed, if possible, an aspiration biopsy before the patient received care and we sent it off for testing. Interesting because, you know, we just usually automatically assume everything is strep viridans, but do you recall what organism you isolated from those cultures? I don't know if I'm dating myself, but it was so many years ago. If I would have known what I was doing now, I probably would have kept like a log or written it down, but truly I can't remember. What I do remember is that I had a few bacterial infections that were often resistant to many antibiotics. And there was one case in particular of a tooth infection that was not resolved um, for a few years and it resulted in osteobilitis. And the patient ended up having to go to the OR and it took me months to have this completely resolve. And if I wouldn't have had the information that I had from the sensitivity test, I don't think I would have been able to treat that successfully because I was really able to target it and work with infectious disease doctors and an oral surgeon to get this infection resolved for a patient. And so now personally, I'm really looking for ways that I can start to do this in my own private practice. It's a little bit more tricky because the VA has such a robust system. It was pretty easy to take a culture and to go downstairs and hand it over in a window to someone who I knew by name and who I would be able to call at six o'clock and, or the next day or whenever, and they would call and personally give me my report and give me recommendations. I've, I've always been a fan of pharmacists and I've, every single organization I've worked in, I've been really, really close to anyone who has been in a lab, has worked in pharmacy, I think because of my passion for antibiotic stewardship, but I, I hope one day I can practice this way again. It makes so much sense when we work together as a team. You really see the different skills people bring together. So I want to ask, and maybe Katie, you can start with this. What situations are driving inappropriate use? Like, for example, in medicine, respiratory viral infections drive a lot of inappropriate antibiotic use. Is it pre-procedure prophylaxis or specific clinical scenarios or even specific patients like those who are unable or unwilling maybe to undergo source control? Well, I would lean more towards the pre-procedure prophylaxis of those groups that you outlined there. We found that approximately 70% of antibiotics prescribed by dentists are for preventative reasons. So yes, pre-procedure prophylaxis drives not only overall antibiotic prescribing by dentists, but also inappropriate prescribing. For specific patient populations, we found that patients with prosthetic joints and patients receiving clinamycin were more likely to receive unnecessary antibiotic prophylaxis. We also found in this group that dental visits where there's a tooth extraction and dental implant procedures were also more likely to receive prophylaxis outside of guidelines. There is some data, there's a Cochrane review that does have some data supporting one dose of an antibiotic prior to an extraction or implant that one dose prior to the procedure can decrease post-operative oral infection and implant failure, but that antibiotic-related ADEs also increase with that antibiotic use, of course. And we found that antibiotics prescribed for extractions and implants are co commonly continued for seven days post-procedure. 
from a, a clinical perspective, I think it's really important. And I would say one of the things that I've been working on over the last few years is educating not only my patients, but the other providers that I'm working with across medicine. One of the challenges is that with all of the data that's coming out in dentistry about pre-procedure prophylaxis, when it's indicated and when it's not indicated, we've actually had a huge mindset shift in dentistry. Years ago, and, and Katie can attest to this, we, we, would, we were basically recommended to give pre-procedure prophylaxis for a ton of patients. In fact, it was really a blanket recommendation. And what we found now is that it's actually not indicated in many, many, many scenarios. And it takes time and it really takes a provider who understands what the research says to be able to walk that patient through decision-making that is different than what they've experienced for 15 or 20 years. And the same is true for other providers. You know, there's surgeons that have been placing um, implants, whether it's a knee or another artificial joint implant that have been practicing a certain way for years. And so it takes time and, it, and you really have to build relationships and have strong conversations to say, you know, the recommendations for dentistry have changed. We no longer recommend X, Y, and Z. They no longer need these prophylactic guidelines. And as a young clinician, I would say one of the, the biggest challenges I've faced in this space of antibiotic stewardship is educating patients who have been experiencing dentistry and prophylactic antibiotic use a certain way for maybe a few decades and equally educating and working alongside other providers that have maybe seen those guidelines for you know different surgical indications as well. So uh, for me, it's been a huge uh, change. I think the focus on training and educating everyone, including the patients, for advocating for themselves for safe practice is really important. That's such a good point, you know, and I, I suspect that patients must be fearful when they've been always getting antibiotics before a procedure and then you tell them they don't need it anymore. Katie, you know, in your data, you, you found a lot of unnecessary prescribing in Medicare Part D recipients, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, we talk about prosthetic joints and usually those happen in people who are a little older. I always think of Medicare Part D recipients as a surrogate for people over 65, but I'm wondering, do we know what's going on with pediatrics? Are they also seeing a high rate of unnecessary antibiotics? In general, dentists don't prescribe a lot of antibiotics to children. I should say that our analysis was limited to adults, so we actually didn't do analyses for kids. However, this is a big black hole. We don't know the indications, the appropriateness, or adverse events. We do assume that children with congenital heart defects do receive an antibiotic prior to a dental visit. And of course, there are kids in the U.S. that have severe oral infections who also are likely getting an antibiotic. But access to dental care is a huge issue in the U.S., especially ch for children. And one thing that I learned, and I think Katie learned alongside me as we were helping create the guidelines for treating uh, tooth pain and swelling in adults, is that one of the first sessions that we had as a team is we actually looked at the big picture of antibiotic use in dentistry. What we found more often than not was that there was other aspects to antibiotic use in dentistry, specifically kids, where we need to not only dive into the research, but create clinical practice guidelines for treating um, infections in kids and, and using antibiotics for prophylaxis. So we have a lot more to learn about treating emergencies in pediatric patients. And we also need to learn more about other groups like immunocompromised patients. If you look at the guidelines that we released, we defined 
immunocompetent as the ability for the body to amount an appropriate immune response to an infection. And immunocompromised patients um, that did not meet the criteria for this recommendation can include, but are not limited to, patients with HIV with an AIDS-defining opportunistic illness, cancer, organ or stem cell transplants, and autoimmune conditions or immunosuppressive drugs. And I think it's really important to note here that the panel consisted of a diverse group of medical professionals that agreed on this list, but many dentists also consider patients with diabetes immunocompromised, especially uh, uncontrolled diabetes. Clearly, inappropriate antimicrobial usage really hits the tip of the iceberg that includes a number of issues in oral health. Access to care and preventative treatment is a huge one. I want to thank you both for helping to frame this issue. We will be back with a part two to discuss resources and strategies for tackling inappropriate antimicrobial usage in dentistry. Before I sign off, I want to acknowledge the SIDP Publications and Podcasts Committee, and in particular, Erin McCreary, Julianne Justo, and Travis Jones for the review and production of this podcast.